Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 107 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about an extinct attraction at Disney's Hollywood Studios, The Great Movie Ride. Perhaps one of the most beloved extinct attractions from the park, The Great Movie Ride was actually the signature attraction at Disney's Hollywood Studios, including when it opened as Disney MGM Studios, and even more than that was the attraction that brought the idea of the entire park to life. It has a really rich history, it's loaded with details and fun facts, all of which of course we'll discuss in this episode, and I'll also take you along with me for a ride on this attraction thanks to the magic of binaural audio. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. of iconic extinct attractions that defined the Michael Eisner era of the Walt Disney Company, one attraction that certainly comes to mind is the Great Movie Ride. One of the reasons many Disney fans hold so much nostalgia for this attraction is because it was itself a love letter to nostalgia. If Disney's Hollywood Studios, formerly of course Disney MGM Studios, was dedicated to the Hollywood that never was and always will be, The Great Movie Ride was dedicated to the Hollywood that forever was and always will be. Believe it or not, the history of The Great Movie Ride actually involves Epcot. In the early days of Epcot, the park was always focused on edutainment, a blending of education and themed entertainment. Recognizing the power of movies, Michael Eisner felt that perhaps Disney could build a movie-based pavilion, which concept art indicates would have sat in future worlds somewhere between the Imagination Pavilion and the Land Pavilion, roughly where the show building for Soarin' now stands. According to the 1996 Disney book, Walt Disney Imagineering, a behind-the-dreams look at making the magic real, which was written by Kevin Rafferty and Bruce Gordon, among the first concepts Michael Eisner encountered, quote, was an idea sparked by Marty Sklar and Randy Bright, then Imagineering creative executives, for a Hollywood studio-themed entertainment pavilion at Epcot. The concept featured a ride that would take guests on a journey into the magic of the movies, literally. As a team of Imagineers began to develop the ride concept, its rich theme prompted several offshoot ideas. It soon became apparent to Michael that this quote great movie ride concept should be expanded in its design to a scale even more grand than an Epcot pavilion. The Imagineers came up with a solution, and the great movie ride was indeed built, surrounded by the 45-acre Disney MGM Studios, end quote. Part of what remained from this original movie concept was a concept sketch by Imagineer Tim Kirk that featured a gangster street and a western street, which we'll discuss in a bit, ended up in the final attraction. 
The other reason Michael Eisner decided on building a full movie-based theme park, other than the fact that this concept seemed grander than an Epcot pavilion, was because he learned that Universal was about to build a theme park in Orlando just up the road from Walt Disney World. Michael knew that this new theme park would convince some Disney guests to shorten their Disney vacations in order to visit the new Universal Park, so he tasked the Imagineers to create a movie-based theme park of their own. He even set a goal of opening the theme park before Universal opened, and Disney succeeded. Universal Studios in Orlando opened on June 7, 1990. Disney MGM Studios opened more than a year earlier, on May 1, 1989. The relationship with MGM Studios came about when Michael Eisner realized that Disney's breadth of movie content paled in comparison to Universal's library. While Disney today owns a vast library of films and shows thanks to a range of acquisitions in the 2000s, the Disney of the 1980s had far fewer films and shows. Remember that this was a time even before the Disney Renaissance, before films like The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, the Lion King, and all other famous Disney films, or a lot of other Disney famous films, into pop culture. When the movie studio theme park concept was developed, these films were only in their earliest stages of development. Looking to other movie studios, Michael found one in particular that could benefit from a licensing agreement with Disney, MGM Studios. MGM truly defined the golden age of Hollywood with films like The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, and Singing in the Rain. These films perfectly matched the aesthetic that Disney was shooting for with their new movie studio theme park. It turns out that MGM Studios was also suffering financial hardship. Their newest films weren't quite sparking the same kind of magic and, more importantly, box office sales that their golden age films had enjoyed. Michael knew that the marriage of these two brands would be a win-win for both companies and for the park. In 1985, Disney approached MGM Studios with the opportunity to license their content and name for Disney's new theme park. In the end, Disney earned the theme park licensing rights to MGM's vast library of films, along with the MGM logo, and it all came at quite a modest fee. To allow both Disney and MGM to evaluate the relationship after a period of time, the contract was not set indefinitely, but only granted for 20 years, giving both studios the chance to discuss and decide to renew or cancel the agreement after the first two decades. For those of you who have visited Disney in the last decade or so, you of course know what resulted after that 20-year period, and we'll get to that point in a little while. With the agreement in place, Disney got to work on Disney MGM Studios, which was set to be a theme park and backlot in one, making guests feel as if they truly set foot into a working movie studio. When it came time to decide on the centerpiece of the park, Disney knew exactly what the signature attraction should be, the concept that set this idea in motion, the great movie ride. To make you feel like you truly stepped into a Hollywood movie park, Disney looked to real Los Angeles locations for inspiration. Not too surprisingly, the Imagineers decided that Hollywood Boulevard would be the main street of the park. The central strip that would serve as the main entrance and exit loaded with shops, food concessions, and lots of street atmosphere. In fact, if you haven't already, I encourage you to listen back to Imagineer Podcast episode 57, which is my interview with Imagineer Craig McNair Wilson, who was responsible for the streetmosphere at the park and has some incredible stories to share about the early days of Disney MGM Studios. 
Walking down Hollywood Boulevard, every detail, including the costumes of the cast members, help to tell the story of the golden age of Hollywood. You feel as if you're walking back in time, and yet you're also walking onto the set of your own movie adventure. When you walk down Main Street USA at the Magic Kingdom, there's nothing like seeing Cinderella Castle at the other end of the street. It calls you into the park and sets the tone for the experience. The same can be said about Spaceship Earth at Epcot. Rounding the corner on the monorail or entering the park by car or bus, Spaceship Earth calls you forward. In creating Disney MGM Studios, the Imagineers needed a similar icon to draw you in, the park's own castle at the end of Main Street, or in this case, at the end of Hollywood Boulevard. Looking to Hollywood icons for inspiration, the Imagineers settled on a building that best represents movies, a movie theater. But not just any movie theater, the Grumman's Chinese Theater. Located at 6925 Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, the Grauman's Chinese Theater is a true Hollywood icon. It's also the location of the Hollywood Walk of Fame. According to the TCL Chinese Theater website, which owns this location, quote, The grand opening of Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood on May 18, 1927, was the most spectacular theater opening in motion picture history. Thousands of people lined Hollywood Boulevard, and a riot broke out as fans tried to catch a glimpse of the movie stars and other celebrities as they arrived for the opening. The film being premiered that night was Cecil, D Cecil B. DeMille's The King of Kings, which was preceded by Glories of the Scriptures, a live prologue devised by master showman Sid Grauman. A Wurlitzer organ and 65-piece orchestra provided music for the prologue. The theater opened to the public the following day, May 19, 1927. The theater rises 90 feet high and two gigantic coral red columns topped by wrought iron masks hold aloft the bronze roof. Between the columns is a 30-foot high dragon carved from stone and guarding the theater's entrances are the two original giant heaven dogs brought from China. The Chinese theater is the most sought-after theater in Hollywood for studio premieres. Fans flock to these events to see the celebrities arrive and walk up the red carpet into the theater. Rich in movie tradition, with its cement handprints and footprints in the forecourt, the Chinese theater immortalizes the brightest stars. More than 4 million visitors from all over the world visit the Chinese theater every year. Chinese theaters was declared a historical cultural, a historic cultural landmark in 1968, and there has always been a restoration program in process to maintain the theater's beauty. On January 11, 2013, the world-famous Chinese theater announced that they would be teaming up with one of China's biggest electronics manufacturers, TCL, aka The Creative Life, in a 10-year naming rights partnership. With this partnership, TCL and the Chinese theaters have plans to preserve a legacy that was created more than 85 years ago and will continue for many years to come." End quote. With such a rich and iconic history, it's no surprise that Disney decided that a replica of the theater should become the centerpiece of Disney MGM Studios, and they designed the structure's facade to be nearly identical to the real thing. Standing at the opposite end of Hollywood Boulevard as you enter the park, the theater sets the tone for your day ahead, and it also serves as an appropriate entrance for the signature attraction of the park, the Great Movie Ride. In designing The Great Movie Ride, the Imagineers now had a wide range of iconic movies to feature in the attraction thanks to the agreement with MGM. In selecting films, Disney wanted to include as many film genres as possible. If you think about the attraction, the ride scene genres include musicals, crime dramas, westerns, horror, adventure, fantasy, and romance. 
The attraction sets don't include every genre out there. Comedy films don't have an official ride scene, for instance, but they still cover a wide range of categories. Before we discuss the attraction experience, let's first talk about the ride conveyance system. The great movie ride fittingly utilizes a moving theater system. It's essentially a smaller version of the ride system used for the universe of energy, or a larger version of the ride system used for the fifth dimension scene, or the hallway scene, and the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. The theater cars follow copper wires on the ground, which steer each vehicle in the appropriate direction along the track. The main difference in this ride system compared to the other two attractions mentioned is the fact that the Great Movie Ride has a manual speed system, which is controlled by a cast member at the front of each vehicle. The benefit of using this system is that it allows for a very large attraction capacity. Each vehicle contains six rows with a total capacity of about 35 guests. Multiplied by the maximum number of vehicles per show, four, this means that the attraction can accommodate about 140 guests at a time, which is about 3,000 guests per hour. The ride system design with the cast member element also creates an interactive experience, which makes no two attraction experiences the same. Before you board the vehicles, though, your experience really begins down Hollywood Boulevard as you head towards the replica of the Grumman's Chinese Theater. Approaching the theater, you'll hear background music that includes some movie scores you might recognize, including the main theme from Exodus, Singing in the Rain, The Overture from My Fair Lady, and Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. This music loop combined with the setting of the theater really helps to transport you into the world of the movies. If you want to learn more about the music of this park as a whole, which is primarily needle drop, meaning most of the music is licensed from films and shows, check out Imagineer Podcast episode 80 with Imagineer Russell Brower, who arranged most of the original music loops at the park. The exterior of the attraction also includes a replica of the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In fact, the park's dedication ceremony included some real celebrities who left their mark on this replica Walk of Fame. Walking by as a guest, you'd be able to see the handprints of Betty White, Jim Henson, Dustin Hoffman, Bob Hope, Jerry Lewis, Maureen O'Sullivan, Mark Hamill, Mary Tyler Moore, and more. You'll also see some tributes from Mickey Mouse, Goofy, Kermit the Frog, and one of my favorites, the ruby slippers worn by Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz. Entering the building, you'll then find yourself in the lobby of the theater, which once again is a replica of the lobby of the Grauman's Chinese Theater. Here you can really see the beauty of the historic site, and I also loved the tranquil music that was played in this room, which provided a peaceful backdrop for the queue experience. Just beyond the lobby for the attraction was a room full of movie props and replicas, most of which changed over the years. Examples of these props included a soldier's uniform from The Wizard of Oz, the Ark from Raiders of the Lost Ark, a dress worn in Titanic, and one of my favorites, one of the horses from the Jolly Holiday scene in Mary Poppins. The queue was designed in such a way that the props were placed in primarily glass boxes in the middle of the queue switchbacks, which gave you the opportunity to examine these treasured movie pieces in 360 degrees. It also provided a pleasant distraction from the wait, although the attraction capacity was so large that you never really had quite enough time to fully appreciate every piece. Needless to say, it gave you another reason to come back and ride the attraction again. Continuing on the theater theme, the next and final room in the queue was a replica movie theater, although instead of seats, the theater included queue switchbacks bouncing left and right from the back of the room to the front. 
Just like a real theater, the room also included a large movie screen, which made this part of the queue essentially a pre-show loop. In the original version of the attraction, this pre-show loop included movie trailers for Fantasia, Alien, The Searchers, Footlight Parade, Casablanca, Mary Poppins, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Singing in the Rain. Not surprisingly, all of these films feature ride scenes on the attraction. This not only served as a kind of prologue for the ride, but also introduced guests to some of the films they might see ahead that perhaps they're not already familiar with. I also love when the Imagineers create something both story-driven and functional, and this pre-show loop is just one of those examples. Before we continue with the boarding experience, let's take a listen back to a brief clip from the original 10-minute pre-show loop. For many of you who recall this attraction as fondly as I do, this might even bring a tear to your eye. Enjoy. Make way for music. From Hollywood comes a dazzling spectacle of sight and sound. With a galaxy of your favorite stars. Why don't you never say no going to rehearsal? Chester, it don't. People ain't paying for shows no more. Talking pictures, that's what they want. It's a fan. I've staged 50 musical comedy and I'll stage 50 more. Footlight Parade. It'll set your feet to tapping. Fine, that's grand, that's grand. How'd you like the job of teaching new kids routines? Well, gee, Mr. Kent, that'll be swell. Come on, come on, the little stars are peeking. And make your heart sing. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I kind of thought you'd weaken Sitting on a backyard fence. Welcome to the great movie ride. In just a few moments, these doors behind me will open and your journey into the movies will begin. As you enter our soundstage, we ask that you please keep your parties together and please refrain from smoking, eating, drinking, and flash photography. Thank you. I was willing to shoot Captain Rhino and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. Approximately once every two minutes, doors at the front right of the theater would open, leading anywhere from 35 to 70 guests into the load area, which would depend on whether the attraction was running at max capacity, four vehicles, which was really only seen on peak days, or regular capacity, two vehicles, which was seen on most days of the year. Interestingly, 
The full cowboy scene in the attraction, which we'll discuss shortly, would only operate on those max capacity days. Guests in the first two cars would glide through the gangster scene and stop in the cowboy scene, while guests in the back two cars would stop in the gangster scene and then glide through the cowboy scene. On all other days of the year, when the attraction was operating two vehicles at a time instead of four, all guests would stop in the gangster scene and glide through the cowboy scene. Needless to say, if I ever saw the attraction operating at max capacity, four vehicles, I would do my best to request the front two cars to try to catch a rare glimpse of that full cowboy scene. The load area of the attraction was designed to look like a working movie set. It included a giant mural of the Hollywood Hills at dusk that covered the wall on one side and bare studio walls on the other. The ceiling included exposed studio lights, which gave guests the perception of being behind the scenes of a movie set. At this point, guests would load into their assigned row and wait for the attraction experience to begin. The load experience was timed with an instrumental prologue of Hooray for Hollywood, which gave the cast members on the attraction, especially the lead of each vehicle, audio cues that would signal which part of the script they should say when and how long they had before they would need to start the ride. This process would need to happen on schedule in order to keep the rest of the attraction show scenes timed properly, although the cast members also had signals throughout the ride that would tell them if they needed to slow down or stop for a delay ahead. If you ever rode the attraction and moved through a scene slower than usual, perhaps even stopping in place when you normally wouldn't, this was due to some kind of delay in the load area with the load or unload process, which always happened at the same dock, or due to some kind of technical issue with the attraction. Upon departing the load area, the vehicles would drive under a bright marquee that said, now playing a spectacular journey into the movies, a cast of thousands, a sweeping spectacle of thrills, chills, romance. Needless to say, it provided for an exciting start to the ride experience. Just beyond the marquee, guests find themselves immersed in the world of musicals, including Footlight Parade and Singing in the Rain. While the set for Footlight Parade inevitably ended up partially covered with bubbles floating down from the ceiling, the original design was much more ambitious. On opening day, the Footlight Parade structure would rotate and featured several water fountains meant to mimic one of the scenes from the film. It was impressive to see, but unfortunately, this sequence was prone to maintenance issues and also posed a flooding risk to the track. Much like the Yeti animatronic on Expedition Everest, the Footlight Parade set was quickly changed to a permanent B-mode, which lasted until the end of the attraction's life. Meanwhile, the iconic Singing in the Rain scene featured a classic rain effect used in movies. It also included an animatronic of the star of the film, Gene Kelly, the first celebrity animatronic on the attraction. Not long after, guests find themselves atop the rooftops of London, singing Chim Chim Cheree next to an animatronic Mary Poppins and Bert, who look just like the real Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. Imagineers are masters of transitions, and this scene is a transition masterclass. The dirty rooftops of London are the perfect visual transition from the musical genre to the crime drama genre, as the next scene immerses guests into the dirty streets of a city's urban underworld. In addition, the minor key of Chim Chim Cheree serves as an audio transition. Chim Chim Cheree is still a cheerful musical number, but the minor key provides a feeling of unease as you head into the next room. It was always one of those little details I appreciated about the attraction, a terrific example of what really sets Disney apart from other parks. 
The gangster scene on this attraction is perhaps one of the most iconic. Rounding a corner, guests come face to face with an unsettling street corner that's dark, filthy, and seemingly riddled with crime. The quiet, bare music and sounds of wind only add to the suspense. Nearby, we, we catch a glimpse of an animatronic James Cagney, who is ironically across the path from a public enemy movie poster billboard featuring his likeness. According to Disney historian Jim Corcus in a 2017 article for Mouse Planet, Cagney's family did not originally approve of his disheveled look in this part of the attraction, so they provided the Imagineers with one of James Cagney's real tuxedos for his animatronic even though Cagney did not wear a tuxedo in this iconic public enemy scene. As we approach the final stretch of the room, one of two things happen. If you're riding the great movie ride on a peak day and are seated in one of the first two cars, you simply proceed into the next room. If you're riding in the back two cars, or if you're riding the attraction on any other day of the year, the traffic light at the end of the room turns red, prompting the cast member to stop the vehicle. At this point, a second cast member playing the role of a seedy gangster emerges from the building on your left. This part of the experience is rather complex, as the cast members must play out the scene with each other and with timed animatronics, music, and special effects. The entire sequence must be delivered perfectly. After a quick exchange, your tour guide disappears to, quote, get popcorn, as a car full of gangsters emerges from a dark tunnel on your right, engaging in an epic gun battle with your car stuck in the middle of the action. One fun fact about the car on your right is that the license plate reads 021429, which in date format reads February 14th, 1929. That date happens to be the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, a battle that took place in Chicago between two gangs led by Al Capone and Bugs Moran. After a few moments of dueling, the live gangster cast member hijacks your vehicle and sends it into the next room, concluding one of the most beloved scenes on the great movie ride. In the next room, guests enter an old western. The music once again sets the scene as you stumble upon an eerily quiet western town. The only two notable figures are two animatronics on each side of the vehicle, one portraying John Wayne on your left and the other portraying Clint Eastwood on your right, two iconic Western film actors. While the two actors have never appeared in a film together, tour guides would often brag that they now appear together in a movie. The great movie ride, that is. Perhaps my favorite fact from this room has to do with the horse. Much like in the movies, sometimes what you see isn't exactly reality. While you circle John Wayne and his horse on one side, you don't see the other. If you were to see the horse on the other side, you would notice that it's unfinished. While Disney parks are famous for completing only what's visible to guests, Disney MGM Studios tends to take that concept a step further. Like the gangster, the cowboy scene also has two possible outcomes. In most cases, having just had your vehicle hijacked by the gangster, you'd glide by this sleepy town and suddenly hear a shootout between a sheriff and a bank robber, primarily portrayed with simple sound effects. However, if you're lucky enough to be in one of the first two cars on a day when the great movie ride is operating at max capacity, you would have bypassed the gangster shootout and seen the full cowboy scene. For those who have never had the chance to experience this story, somebody in the bank at the back left of the room would shout that the bank was being robbed, which would prompt your tour guide to stop the car nearby to help, saying something like, somebody's robbing the bank, not on my watch, Pilgrim. 
As your tour guide approaches the bank, an armed robber, played by a live cast member, would come running out the door as a hidden accomplice, played by a cowboy animatronic, would pop his head up from behind some barrels and point his rifle at your tour guide, prompting the guide to stop in place. After some quick dialogue, the sheriff would pop his head up across the way, rifle in hand, and shout to the criminals that they're under arrest. Your guide would use this opportunity to duck away as the shootout begins, once again with your car in the middle of the action. After a few moments, the bank robber would throw a stick of dynamite into the bank window and head towards your car, seizing the opportunity to get away from the action. Not long after, an explosive pyrotechnic effect would light up the bank in flames, literally, giving the cowboy the appropriate distraction to take your car full speed ahead into the next room. At this point, all vehicles, whether you experienced the full gangster shootout or the full cowboy shootout, would follow the same story sequence. The only difference would be the new cast member guiding the tour, which would either be a wise-talking gangster or a wild western outlaw. The next sequence of the great movie ride takes us into the most frightening part of the attraction as we step aboard the close quarters of the Nostromo, the iconic vessel from the Ridley Scott sci-fi horror film Alien, and slow down to a snail's pace, adding even more suspense to this quiet, empty corner of space. Savvy movie fans will recognize that Alien is not an MGM film, but a movie produced and distributed by 20th Century Fox. While Disney now owns the, that movie studio, they certainly didn't back in 1989, nor did MGM. How did Disney get the rights, and why did they select a rated R film? Well, that all has to do with another attraction located at the Magic Kingdom, Alien Encounter, which opened about five years later. Originally, Michael Eisner was hoping to use the Alien franchise as the basis for the attraction. He even went so far as to get the rights but the Imagineers soon pivoted to a different Disney-created experience with an alien theme. Since Disney already had the rights to use Alien in a theme park, Eisner saw this as a great opportunity for the great movie ride. If you want to learn more, definitely check out Imagineer Podcast episode 89, which is an in-depth discussion of Alien Encounter. The alien scene on the great movie ride includes an animatronic Sigourney Weaver portraying her character Ripley, as well as a couple of jump scares from the alien creature, one coming down towards the vehicle from the ceiling and the other on the vehicle's right. The second jump scare, which was not originally part of the attraction but added later, prompts the car to speed up into the next room. Harrison Ford fans will of course enjoy the next room, which portrays a famous scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark in which Indiana Jones and Sala have uncovered the Lost Ark. Surrounded what seem by what seems to be hundreds of snakes, the animatronic Harrison Ford and John Rhys Davies are spectacular, looking like they're really struggling to lift the Ark. Meanwhile, if you were to look on the opposite side of the room, you also might notice a couple of hidden Easter eggs among the many hieroglyphs. A hieroglyph R2-D2 and C-3PO, of course paying tribute to George Lucas's other great saga, and an Egyptian Donald Duck serving a slice of cheese to a pharaoh Mickey Mouse. Passing through this room, we end up in a scene paying tribute to generic ancient horror with a priceless jewel beckoning greedy adversaries. At this point, the gangster or cowboy who has commandeered your vehicle notices the jewel, parks the tram in place, and heads up the steps to grab the jewel. A foreboding character dressed in a full robe and hood facing away from the vehicle tries to stop the bandit, moving in a way that is convincingly meant to be an animatronic. Of course, this point sets off a great plot twist for first-time riders. 
As the bandit grabs the jewel, smoke surrounds the bandit as the mysterious Egyptian character tosses off the robe, revealing that it was actually our original tour guide after all. The guide blows the smoke away from the area to reveal a skeleton grabbing onto the jewel, indicating that our bandit has of course suffered a deadly curse from an unwillingness to resist greed and, and temptation. Of course, this is all just a clever movie trick. A rotating door underneath the jewel is pushed by the bandit cast member once the smoke envelops the area. On the other side of the rotating door is a skeleton prop which appears as the smoke clears. This enables the bandit to head over a series of catwalks back to the appropriate scene, the gangster or cowboy shootout, to take the next group of guests hostage. Similarly, the tour guide who had disappeared earlier simply followed the catwalks in the other direction to this Egyptian scene to await our group. It's a fantastic plot twist that always delighted guests, especially those riding the attraction for the first time. From here, our tour guide resumes command of our group and proceeds through a tunnel of mummies into the next show scene, a tribute to the 1932 film Tarzan the Ape Man. Here we catch a glimpse of several animatronics, including a replica Maureen O'Sullivan, who played Jane, riding atop an elephant, and an animatronic Tarzan swinging on a vine. While it might appear that there are two Tarzans, one swinging one direction across the room and another swinging the opposite direction, it was simply one animatronic that would swing across the room, rotate in place, swing back across the room, and rotate in place again. If you've been to Disneyland Paris lately, and ridden their version of Pirates of the Caribbean, you might recall a pirate swinging on a rope in a similar fashion. That's because it's actually the same animatronic repurposed for Paris. It just goes to show how Disney will often reuse and recycle all animatronics and parts for creative additions to other attractions. Next up, we pass the famous airport scene from Casablanca, a dramatic ending to the film in which Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick, lets go of the love of his life, Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman, for the greater good of the Allies in World War II. It's a classic scene that even those who never saw the film would recognize. A couple of fun facts I love about this scene include Ingrid Bergman's animatronic and the plane in the background. To start with Ingrid, her family wouldn't sign off on the rights to her voice, which is why Humphrey Bogart's animatronic is the only character speaking in the scene. In terms of the plane, you might notice that the plane is missing a back half. The full plane would not fit in the room, so Disney had to chop the plane in half. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, Disney loves to reuse and recycle, so you can find the back half of the plane somewhere else at Walt Disney World. Take a moment and think about where you might see the back half of a plane at the parks. Any guesses? Well, the back half of the plane actually exists at the Jungle Cruise at the Magic Kingdom. Skippers will often joke as they pass the broken plane that they took a crash course and have just been winging it ever since. The next time you're missing the great movie ride, definitely head over to the Jungle Cruise and remember that the front half of the plane you see once existed in this now extinct attraction. At this point of the attraction, we're heading towards what's perhaps the most immersive part of the experience, but it was once meant to be even more impressive. Perhaps the most classic film of all time, The Wizard of Oz was meant to be featured in not just one, but four show scenes. After the Casablanca scene, you might recall the Fantasia sequence, which happens in the small dark room with wind effects as you partially circle Sorcerer Mickey in his famous Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence from the film. If you look closely, the screen and its surrounding structure look a bit like a tornado. 
That's because this was originally meant to be the twister scene from The Wizard of Oz, where you'd feel like Dorothy being blown away to the land of Oz, which would lead you into Munchkinland. Of course, Munchkinland ended up being a part of the attraction, as was the yellow brick road scene that appears after, which would make up the second and third part of the sequence. The final scene was intended to be an encounter with the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. The scene would have been larger than life and once again would have made you feel like Dorothy in the film. Unfortunately, upon seeing the plans, MGM reminded Disney that they were only allowed a certain number of minutes to depict each film, and Disney's grand four-room sequence ran over that allotted time. The Imagineers instead cut the sequence in half, turning the first room into the Fantasia sequence and the last room into the final film montage. The parts that remained were Munchkinland and the Yellow Brick Road. The Munchkinland scene is perhaps the most classic part of the ride. Gliding into the room and singing along to the famous tune Ding Dong the Witch is Dead, we pass by a beautiful Munchkinland set and dozens of Munchkins. It's at this point that the four vehicles would converge again on maximum capacity days, and the first of the two tour guides would enable a speaker system that would overtake the back two cars, making it easier for everyone to hear the guide's part of the sequence. Upon parking in place, a Wicked Witch animatronic would appear in a cloud of smoke, frightening all the munchkins to hide back in their homes. At the time the ride was built, the Wicked Witch was the most advanced audio animatronic, an A100 model. After some time dialogue with the main tour guide cast member, the Wicked Witch would disappear in a cloud of fire and smoke, and the munchkins would emerge once again, recommending the way out is to follow the yellow brick road. Of course, this would prompt everyone to sing along to the famous Wizard of Oz song of the same name. Passing by an animatronic Dorothy, Scarecrow, Tin Man, Cowardly Ryan, and Toto gazing at Oz in the distance, the cars park in the final room, which again was originally meant to be the great and powerful Wizard of Oz sequence, but ended up being a three-minute montage of classic MGM and Disney films. The montage saw some changes over the years as new Disney films came into existence, but remained in the same spirit of the original version. The montage is the final major scene of the attraction as the vehicles would then head back to the loading dock. Here we once again would hear hooray for Hollywood as your tour guide would ask for a thunderous applause and send you on your way to enjoy the rest of your day at the park. Speaking of tour guides, it's worth mentioning that the cast members on this attraction had quite a complicated role. Not only did they need to learn how to operate the ride, but they also had to learn a complex script. This required learning more than just the words, which amounts to nearly 20 minutes of dialogue, but also the timing and pace at which those words need to be delivered. Especially with certain time sequences like the Gangster Shootout, Cowboy Shootout, and Wizard of Oz sequence, along with some other timed moments throughout the ride, this process was certainly a difficult undertaking. Much like any other role, cast members training for the attraction would have to pass a, rigor a rigorous evaluation to graduate to an official cast member for the ride, and it goes without saying that the great movie ride took an extra talented group of people. The gangster and cowboy roles were also special positions on the attraction that required an extra audition process, which is why these roles were generally occupied by the more senior cast members on the attraction. In 2005, the contract with MGM was set to expire. Upon evaluation of the first 20 years, Disney and MGM decided to part ways. This led to a required rebranding of the park, and in January 2008, Disney MGM Studios was formally renamed 
to Disney's Hollywood Studios, which still captured the spirit of the park, but no longer featured the MGM brand. Of course, references to the MGM name and logo were also removed from the park and other signage and marketing around Walt Disney World. Unfortunately, the expiration of the contract also meant that the Great Movie Ride lost a sponsor. It also posed Disney with a complicated question. How will this attraction remain relevant as time goes by? And how could the Imagineers update the attraction now that the MGM contract has expired? In 2015, about 10 years later, Turner Classic Movies gave Disney a short-term solution, saving the attraction for a couple of years by sponsoring the ride. With the new sponsorship, Disney was able to update the queue, pre-show, and ride narration. I have to admit I really enjoyed the new pre-show, which went from a 10-minute trailer loop to a 45-minute documentary about some of the most classic films of all time. In terms of the ride itself, much like what happened with attractions like Living with the Land, the time of cast members narrating automated attractions was slowly becoming a thing of the past. With the new sponsorship, TCM host Robert Osborne became a central part of the pre-show and ride narration, even replacing some of the former cast member live script. It seemed like perhaps the great movie ride would eventually become an automated attraction without a cast member in each vehicle. Still, the question about movie relevance and how to handle ride scene updates was a lingering issue. Even with Disney's Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm acquisitions, a renovation of tremendous scope and budget would be required to completely remove all MGM film sequences and to update this complex attraction. Instead, Disney and the Imagineers had another idea in mind. At the D23 Expo in 2017, it was announced that the Great Movie Ride would be closing just a month later in August of that year. In its place, Disney would be creating Mickey and Minnie's first ever ride-through attraction, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. This change marked the end of an era and a turning point for the park. With the removal of the Great Movie Ride, the Backlot Tour, and Lights Motors Action, the park would no longer have any mention of MGM films. This would enable Disney to focus the park on their expanding library of content and characters. It would also provide a new generation of fans with a classic attraction at Walt Disney World. Change is never easy, and I truly miss the Great Movie Ride. It was one of my favorite attractions at the park, and one that I will always remember fondly. Of course, I'm, an, I'm a nostalgist, but I'm more so an optimist and a pragmatist. The Great Movie Ride was certainly great, but in terms of a Disney attraction, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway is incredible. It's fun for all ages, loaded with mind-blowing special effects, and perhaps one of the most iconic family attractions at the park. Not to mention it features the most iconic Disney characters of all time, Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, and the other members of the Mickey Yang. I adore what Kevin Rafferty, Charita Carter, and the rest of the Imagineering team have put together with this new attraction, and I think it stands as a worthy successor to the signature attraction of the park. At this point, I'd love to take you with me for a ride on this classic attraction. While I certainly have a wide collection of binaural audio recordings, I unfortunately was unable to grab a recording of the great movie ride before the attraction closed. Having ridden the attraction countless times, it's amazing I not once thought to record it. In any case, I want to thank YouTube creator VirtualWDW for providing a full binaural audio recording of the attraction for us to use in this episode. 
This recording is from the latest TCM version of the attraction, just about a month before it officially closed. In case you're interested in watching the video of this audio recording, which I encourage you to do, I'm, I'm going to include a link to the full video in the description of this podcast episode. Thanks again to Virtual WDW for providing us with this audio. As with other binaural recordings, I encourage you to listen with headphones or earbuds to get the most realistic audio experience, but listening on speakers or in your car will still help transport you back to the magic. So, without further ado, I encourage you to sit back and enjoy the great movie ride.
welcome aboard. At this time, I'd like to ask everyone to please remain seated throughout the show, and please keep your arms, hands, feet, and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Don't forget to supervise your children, and for the safety of our cast, we ask that you please refrain from the use of flash photography and external video lighting. Whew, well, now I'm taking care of business. Let's talk about me. My name is Brittany, and I'll be your guide for this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for me, because I love movies. Is everybody ready? Yeah. Great, because the cameras are ready to roll. Ready when you are, CB. significant contributions to the world of film were great musicals. This scene is from one of my favorites, the 1933 Busby Berkeley Spectacular Footlight Parade. Here's one of the most famous of all band sequences. It's from the 1952 musical classic, Singing in the Rain. Here's Gene Kelly, Singing in the Rain. Literally. Ah, uh, here's one of the quintessential Disney musicals, Mary Poppins, starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. This classic earned 13 Academy Award nominations. Shim Shim Cherie. I love this song. Sing along. Folks, but I don't want to run a red light, even in the movies. I'm not allowed to leave my vehicle. Get over here. 
I think it's time for a visit to a concession stand. What? Mr. Osborne, Bye. wait. Um, okay, Muggsy, whatever you say. Entering is extremely dangerous. Proceed with caution. 
will always have past. We didn't have me. We lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. From all of us 
us here at Disney's Hollywood Studios and Turner Classic Movies. We hope you've enjoyed our tour through some of my favorite films. But remember, there are many more adventures waiting for you every day on TCM. <laughs>
And with that, we close out episode 107 of the Imagineer podcast. I hope you enjoyed this in-depth discussion of the great movie ride, and perhaps you learned something new from this podcast episode. I also want to thank once again Virtual WDW on YouTube for providing us with the audio recording that we used in this episode. I encourage you again to check out the video in the link in the description of this episode or to, of course, check out Virtual WDW's YouTube channel as a whole because they have a lot of really great videos to enjoy. I, of course, want to turn this conversation over to you. And today's question is going to be rather interesting. If you were an Imagineer and you had the chance to re-envision a great movie ride with new movie sequences, new show scenes, which movies would you select? What would those show scenes look like? Give me as much detail as you can about the experience that you would envision and help bring to life. You can, of course, send me your answers in feedback and in so many places. And I would encourage you to follow Imagineer Podcast at these places as well on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast, on Twitter at Imagineer News. And you can also join our Facebook group and comment there. Our Facebook group is called The Imagination, which is also called The Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community. And that gives you the chance to talk about this episode and all other Disney subjects with me and with other listeners of this community. You can also send me an email at matt at imagineerpodcast.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, I encourage you to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcast, or any other podcast app, which will ensure that you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. And if you have a few seconds to leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts and perhaps even write us a review, it does a lot to help this show out. I want to thank the more than 500 of you who have so far left us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. I see all of your reviews. I read each one of them personally, and I sometimes even share them out to my Facebook and Instagram stories. And I truly do appreciate the kind words. It certainly encourages me to continue pushing this show forward to do as much as I can to provide you with the best show experience possible. And it always helps to uh, help new users who are discovering or looking for a Disney podcast to stumble upon Imagine Your Podcast and encourage them to uh, check it out. So thanks to all of you. And again, if you haven't yet left a rating and a review, definitely consider doing so in Apple Podcasts or even on Facebook. But even just sharing the show, which is probably one of the best things you can do, whether you share out this podcast episode, the podcast as a whole, any social media channel or post, or if you just talk about it with your friends and family, especially those who love all things Disney, it does a lot to help the show out. I sincerely thank and appreciate those of you who continue to share the word about Imagine Your Podcast, I especially when you share it on social media, notice it, and I thank you so very much for doing so. And if you would like to take your love of Imagine Your Podcast to the next level, I definitely encourage you to check out our Patreon group. If you love all the free content that's available between Imagine Your Podcast, the podcast, and the community, you're really going to love the Patreon group because I infuse even more energy and content into this exclusive community. Patreon is a way that you can help to support the show financially, and in return, you get exclusive perks and benefits, things that are only accessible to our Patreon members. And these include things like access to a private Facebook group, 
access to my close friends list on Instagram where I'll often post out bonus content just for Patreon members, weekly Disney Plus watch parties, which have been a ton of fun to host and uh, to enjoy with other members of the Patreon community. Plus, early access to podcast episodes, access to my podcast production notes, bonus podcast episodes, virtual monthly events, and so much more. You can learn what's currently available because depending on when you're listening, these terms and conditions and uh, different perks are subject to change, of course, simply by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And thanks, as always, to our Imagineer podcast patreon members i sincerely thank appreciate and love you all thank you so very very much i would also encourage you to check out our partners first take a look at the kingdom insider over at thekingdominsider.com and the kingdom insider on all social media channels in case you would like to get the latest news and updates about all things disney and that includes what's happening at all the disney parks and resorts around the world and how to bring the magic of disney into your own home. Again, you can check them out at thekingdominsider.com and The Kingdom Insider on your favorite social media channel. And when you're ready to book a vacation to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, Aulani, or any other Disney destination, check out our partner, Mickey Vacations and Mickey Vacations by Academy Travel because Academy Travel is a diamond earmarked agency. That is the highest level of distinction that Disney bestows upon travel agencies. And that's because they've been doing this for a long time. They've been helping to plan vacations for over 25 years. They provide an incredible level of service and can help to eliminate all the guesswork, take care of all the fine details of booking your Disney vacation. And because they're aware of the available discounts that you might be eligible for, they can also to help save you money on your next Disney vacation. And better yet, they do this at no additional cost to you. You can request a free quote, no obligation, by clicking on the links in the show notes below or head to imagineerpodcast.com click on the travel drop down and select your destination, which will take you to a form to fill out. If you fill it out, they will get back to you as soon as possible with that free quote. Last but not least, I want to encourage you as always to go after your hopes, your dreams, your goals, whatever you might have in mind. There's never a better time than today to start planning and to start doing, to make that dream a reality. And remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Kingdom. Then the incredible Epcot Center. Now comes the new Disney MGM Studios theme park. The Disney MGM Studios theme park at Walt Disney World in Florida.